Shit Platypus Says, episode 51. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Shit Platypus Says, the commentary on the commentary on the left. My name is Pamela Noeles and I am one of your co-hosts. This special election SPS comes to you in two parts. In the first, I sit down with our Brazilian members, Paulo and Rosa. Paulo is speaking to us from St. Paulo, Brazil. Rosa is speaking to us from New York. Both comment on the election results and how the left is responding to the return of Lula and what it means for the future of a socialist left. In the second part, our member Adoni in Oregon hosts a roundtable conversation after the U.S. midterm elections with members around the country from New Hampshire to Walla Walla, Washington, Philadelphia to Merced, California. We hear what our members have to say about the recent elections, the response by the left, and if there's anything for us to learn from this election. A reminder that SPS is broadcasted on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as SoundCloud. And if you like the podcast, share it. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to get the word out. Okay, here we go. This is a segment, a special segment on the recent Brazilian elections, and I am here with two of our members, one directly from Sao Paulo, Brazil, speaking to us very late at night. Hi, Paulo. Hi, Pam. And we have another member who is heading the New School chapter in New York, also from Brazil. Hi, Rosa. Hi, Pam. So I know very little about... Brazilian politics. Um, a while back, and we'll link this in the episode description, we had Alex Huchuli here about four years ago talking about the last Brazilian elections. But now we just happen to have two platypus Brazilian members. And I thought it would be a good idea to get you on and educate us a bit about what just what just happened and what does it have to do with the left? Uh, so what just happened? Uh, so recently, Lula won the presidential elections against Bolsonaro, and it was an unprecedented event in several aspects. It was the first time since the end of the Brazilian military dictatorship, that is, the first time since the end of the 1980s, that a presidential candidate that was already in the government failed to achieve the re-election. And it was also the closest race of the basically the whole history of Brazilian presidential elections. So in the first round, uh, Lula had about 6 million more votes than Bolsonaro. And in the second round, he had just about 2 million more. more. So he won with a very a short margin of 50.9% of the votes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I read uh, you wrote a little report about some protests, um, supporters of Bolsonaro who were against the election outcome. Is that still going on or has that died down now? Uh, It's still going on, but it's much smaller. What happened was uh, actually in the day of the elections, uh, the Federal Highway Police 
made some actions in order to prevent Lula supporters from voting. Uh, they basically decided that the election day was the ideal time to make uh, very thorough inspections in all the buses in certain regions. So they basically set up operations to try to prevent some people from voting. And then in the, while the votes were being count, counted, the, some Bolsonaristas started to protest the results by blocking roads across the country. And the same institution, the Federal Highway Police, basically refused to act and to uh, to free the roads. And actually, part of the police force was very much in favor of the protests and in agreement with the with the Bolsonaristas on the the idea that the elections were rigged and so on. Mm-hmm. There were accusations of a of a coup. Is that right? Yeah, th- the movement is now calling for what they term a federal intervention, which is basically a nice way to say a military coup. But this is obviously not not representative of the 58 uh, million Brazilians that voted for Bolsonaro. This is a very noisy minority, mm-hmm. but they are mm-hmm. also quite well organized. And, but anyway, uh, now the roads are clear, and as the day passes, it's clear that Lula is going to to take uh, power in the beginning of next year, and he will have to face an extremely fierce uh, far-right opposition, the likes of which uh, Brazil has never seen before. But uh, I think there is really no, realistically, not real chance of a old-style classical military coup taking place right now. Rosa, did you have anything to add? So I think it's very interesting, first, the way you, you frame this as being unprecedented, because I think that like the core issue of this election is that it is the, the most foreseeable because Lula was in power for so long he is this big figure for the left and for you know the masses of the people he has this this bonapartist kind of um charisma and martyrdom especially after he was arrested and so i think that it was very actually expected that he was gonna win to maintain the power of pity over the state is just it's precisely the status quo of brazil so first of all i i think that this is not a change i don't think this this election is actually a maintenance of the same i say that because oh again paula you say that, well, Lula is going to have to face this far-right opposition. I mean, how can we... What is this far-right opposition, really? Like, how can we talk about a far-right as opposed to Lula, which is what? The left? Because Lula, the Workers' Party, they're right-wing. So I don't think there's there's really a way to to look at this as being as being two sides of the spectrum. I think they're more on the on the same side here. So PT, which is the Workers' Party, uh, you mentioned that the relationship of PT to the state is one of they have a close relationship that they're in power that this is the extension of the status quo. Is that what I understand, Rosa? Yes. Yes. 
Okay. And so in that sense, you're, what you're saying here is just more of the same. It's just the extension of what already exists. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if anything, it's part of, of the reason why a lot of the left wanted to elect Lula was because he is going to reinstate all these things that he had in the past that Bolsonaro changed, right? Like just on this very basic level, policy-wise, the whole management of capitalism is he's just going to return to the same kind of management that he had in the past. I mean, it's just the same thing. It's just a maintenance of capitalism, just augmenting the size of the welfare state, giving more power to the state. That's Lula. This reminds me of um, the comment by uh, Carlos Pessoa, who was in the 2015 panel that Platypus had in Halifax in Nova Scotia, what is political party for the left? I'll link that in the episode description. And he said the following, and maybe this can help us kind of open up this issue. Um, the lesson was, once you're in power, you have to establish much better channels in order to bring the unorganized sectors, people who are busy, people who do not have the privilege of attending meetings, discussions, and readings. All this was happening until the election of Lula, which is the point where we see a great deal of neglect when it came to creating more participatory channels. The party became too focused on crafting progressive policies. Many left. Ultimately, what prevailed was a politics that, once in power, understood its role only as dealing with the different political forces at play and crafting progressive policies within the existing economic structures. There was no willingness to invite risk by offering a program that talks about major structural changes, be it land reform, housing, or anything else. In the last election, the BWP had a campaign manager complete with the typical attitude that you have to win to be in power, and they ran negative ads. That is what they have become, the Brazilian Workers' Party. Um, and so, okay, so there's this reinstatement, I guess that's the framing that Rosa you're offering. There's a kind of reinstatement of the same, a return of what Pessoa was just describing. And yet, I mean, it seems, you know, when we had Alex Fachuli on and when there was like a pretty public support for Lula across the different uh, parts of the American left, at least the ones that I could see, it seems like the socialists, the self-identified socialists, really see this as an opportunity for them. I wonder how you make sense of that, Paolo. Yeah, uh, of course, I broadly agree with Rosa. Uh, I mean, from the point of view of the struggle for socialism, one really doesn't have to take sides on capitalist politics in general. And it's interesting to point out that actually in this election, unlike in past elections, the Workers' Party didn't even try to associate itself with the struggle for socialism. Mm. Instead, they used the figure of Bolsonaro to uh, formulate uh, a dubious kind of anti-fascism, which took the place for the equally dubious struggle for socialism. So, of course, the Lula's victory is it's not really uh, a step, it's not in any way a step uh, forward in the struggle for socialism, nor is it really a step in the struggle against fascism. But from the point of view of capitalist politics, the situation is indeed very electrifying. And maybe what we can register is this uh, vast difference between how electrifying this is, on the one hand, from the point of view of capitalist politics, and how meaningless it all seems 
from the point of view of the struggle for socialism. Of course, the, all the left organizations and parties that are supporting Lula, some of them have a few illusions that he might uh, improve people's lives and others simply uh, support him on the basis that Bolsonaro would pursue an authoritarian uh, political regime change. And so under Lula, it would be easier to organize and struggle for socialism. Uh, so there is this kind of, of thinking going on. But really, uh, I would like maybe just to comment briefly on the question of Bonapartism that Rosa brought up. Uh, sure, we can say that Lula is a Bonapartist, but maybe that would be confusing Bonapartism with this kind of Latin American populism, which is something else. Uh, but uh, speaking of Bonapartism, it's important to bring attention to the role of the judicial, judiciary and also the military in the Brazilian elections, not only in the current election, in the 2022 elections, but also in 2018. Basically, in 2018, the judicial system intervened in the election to prevent Lula from running quite arbitrarily in this juridical farce. And then, just as farcically, they decided to let him run. Um, and they are also uh, having a quite heavy-handed approach to fake news. And this is part of the feeling of injustice on the part of the Bolsonaristas, who believe the elections were rigged and so on. And also the military, uh, they have been intervening much more drastically in Brazilian politics recently. Uh, in 2018, they signaled that if Lula were allowed to, to run for presidency and if he weren't arrested, that they might consider some kind of regime change. And now uh, they, they did an alternative vote count and they supervised the elections in what I think is a very clear case of the special forces of armed men overstepping their boundaries and not allowing uh, civil society to organize independently its own electoral process. So we, we have a clear degeneration of democratic institutions in Brazil, and this process is not going to stop under Lula. This is something much broader. I hope that under Lula it will maybe go down slower than it would under Bolsonaro, but Certainly, Lula is not going to be able to solve any of this. We have a much broader social crisis. I feel a duty to return to this question of, of Bonapartism, though, because I think that, I guess, the lesson of 1848 that Platypus takes up in the reading group is that as soon as the socialists conceive of the state as acting on behalf of the struggle for socialism, it's given up the task for the struggle for socialism. It's sort of given up leadership. And I think Latin American populism is a version of, of this. I guess it's also worthy to note, correct me if I'm wrong, but that Bolsonaro in the lead up to the elections pushed for the expansion of social welfare programs for poor families perhaps as a last hurrah in order to be able to compete with the support for Lula. Um, it, it's it's interesting, though, because there is a way that 
that in itself is a Bonapartist move in the same way in which the expansion of the welfare state under Lula would also be a Bonapartist move. I guess for us in Platypus, the question is, what does the left think? How does the left make make sense of it? What has happened in the lead up to this um, election? Have uh, socialists, other people on the left, I know that there's the the United Socialist Workers Party, who are the Trotskyists. There are other parties like Popular Unity. Have they raised a critique of Lula's regime and the return to the status quo? Or what has happened to these independent parties uh, in the lead up to the election? Basically, most parties, if not almost every party of some uh, visibility, is supporting Lula. There is a party to the left of Lula's working party, which is called PSOL, uh, which emerged from a break with the Workers' Party during the first Lula government in the early 2000s, uh, due to the fact that Lula was uh, passing austerity measures like pension reforms and so on. And this party failed to present its own candidacy for the first time since it emerged. So for my experience, this was the first time in which there wasn't a socialist candidate on the television in the debates, making a critique of the Workers' Party. Mm. Uh, this used to be the case, but now with the threat of so-called fascism uh, that mm. Bolsonaro represents, we are seeing this huge collapse, collapse of the left into the Workers' Party. And other parties presented candidacies like the Brazilian Communist Party, the Popular Union for Socialism, and the party you mentioned, the Unified Socialist Workers' Party. But they all supported Lula in the second round of the elections. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them are more anti-Bolsonaro, and some are a bit more pro-Lula in their messaging. But they all really sound quite similar right now. They are speaking in terms of trying to push Lula to the left, and trying to dispute the government with the pressions, the new liberal pressions that are also being exerted upon Lula. Just a quick clarification question. Do these parties think that they can be an effective pressure on the Workers' Party? Yeah, it sounds crazy when you say it out loud. <laughs> I mean, I'm just wondering if that's their motivation, because sometimes I wonder how much when these parties say the reason why we're supporting Lula is because we're stopping fascism or we want to prevent fascism, this kind of popular front politics that we know from the 1930s, etc. What is the real narrative here? Because I almost have this disbelief that they really believe that. And, that I, and I wonder if it's an instrumental way of bringing the left together in like a unity project, or do they just do they believe that it's a real opening for them, that the election of Lula presents an opening when then they can present their own programs? My impression is that if they didn't support Lula, they would face some serious political crisis. Part of the membership would leave them and they would be basically outcasted by the left in general. It was always hard to organize independently and against the Workers' Party. And now with Bolsonaro, I think it will be much harder. We had uh, very uh, massive protests in 2013 when the Workers' Party were in government. 
that had to do with like the press, the prices of public transportation, but that basically become became this kind of very broad demonstration of dissatisfaction with the status quo. And today, a great portion of the left believes that these kind of, of protests were what generated a fascism in Brazil. So it was the fact that students agitated against the workers' government, the, the workers' party government. Uh, this is what gave us Bolsonaro. So uh, it will huh. be very hard for leftists to, to organize under Lula. Um, let me just say one thing um, in terms of this question of the whether the left is seeing this as as a, a, a potential for impacting the Workers' Party or for actually implementing their more socialist program. The thing is that, um, for example, the organizations they are adjacent to to the Workers' Party, we know that they call themselves more radical, either youth or um, students' organizations, they absolutely have been supporting, the, especially the students, have been supporting Lula precisely because they think it's an opportunity. Precisely because it's the, it's the potential to start again and, and, and implement socialism. Or, or, but the thing is that it's, I think the issue is that the lack of self-reflection in the sense that the, the issue is not... Who is in government, right? The issue is not that Bolsonaro is in government. The issue is not that Lula is in government. The issue is the left itself that has failed to organize itself and organize the working class. I think that in one way or another, that is the issue that lacks in the discussions of the left. And I think that one of the, and I, you brought this up earlier, Paulo, we were talking about this. One of the people that we had on our Ukraine panel from this small sect in Brazil called um, Socialist Transition, they're Trotskyist, very small organization. And they really are the only ones that I've also seen that are actually very critical of the left, that there is no left-wing party in Brazil, that this election is showing this, and very critical of the support because... Um, I think that the biggest critique that Socialist Transition had of the other parties on the left is that they were kind of hiding their true intentions because the parties would say, the Communist Party or the Socialist Party, they would say, oh, we are, we are going to run someone for president for the first uh, runoff, and they, but they wouldn't on the second runoff. And so that already was showing for for this for the socialist transition, this organization, already showing that they were they had no intentions of actually attempting to have their candidates win or not. That the point was all Lula in the end, and then you just have this show of face. So I think that in the end of the day, there is very a big lack of self criticism on the Brazilian left. It is a Trump situation again like we're back we it's the same it's a very analogous situation to the american trump bernie trump biden situation i was gonna say on this just because it struck me when you said paulo that um that there was this critique of the uh transport protests that 
The idea is that critiquing the Workers' Party created the possibility for the rise of Bolsonaro and therefore opened the door to, quote unquote, this like fascist politics. It reminded me of the kind of gaslighting that the Democratic Party does in the United States. So under the pandemic, when you had, for example, people in Michigan, Ohio, Texas, um, protesting that they were not considered to be essential workers. So, you know, if they didn't get this vaccine, they weren't able to go to work that, you know, that it had all of these effects in their daily lives. And people on the left labeled them fascists. And a lot of those people in Michigan, which is the place that I, I grew up that I know best, you know, they, they really didn't have any party loyalty. So they're the kind of stuff that potential, right, is made out of the social discontent that the left would have to organize in order to bring a change, in order not to return to the status quo. So it, it just reminded me of that kind of gaslighting of saying like, well, you see those people, the, those people are the reason why we're in such a bad situation, as opposed to saying, well, the left hasn't learned how to organize that social discontent. So more of the same continues and the Democratic Party can speak as if they're the voice of reason. I don't know if that registers. I know that we're in midterm elections right now. And so that's what's on my mind. But it reminded me, right, the criticism of the Brazilian Workers' Party that somehow it opens the door to fascism. It really sounds like gaslighting. Sure. I would be a bit careful with uh, direct comparisons between the situation with Bolsonaro and Trump. But anyway, the group that Rosa mentioned, Socialist Transition, it certainly faces a lot of hostility for not supporting Lula and for being very actively against the Workers' Party. They are sometimes even treated as fascist collaborationists. So I think... Part of the left blamed the mass demonstrations that took place during the Workers' Party government in 2013, not only for laying the ground for the rise of fascism, but also uh, they see it as a kind of CIA-backed color revolution, a form of hybrid war. So there is a lot of nonsense and a lot of conspiracy theory and a lot of hostility against uh, people agitating from the left against Lula and the Workers' Party. And this is why I said earlier that I think the reason why most left parties supported Lula is because it's not really due to the leadership, but due to the left as a mess. Because if the parties didn't support Lula over Bolsonaro, I think they would face a serious political crisis because I think most leftists experience Bolsonaro as an existential threat. So even if the party leaderships can be more cool-headed, I think it, it would be very, very hard to, to take a different position today. Yeah, I guess that's why Platypus says the left is dead. When we say that, it's not like, oh, stupid people, they don't know what to think, but rather like the conditions of possibility for a left opposition would have to be created by those who are fighting for socialism. And insofar as that doesn't exist, then the choice becomes, well, do we have uh, a progressive alternative to the right-wing candidate? Like which right-wing is less conservative politics? So I guess that's frustrating for those of us who consider the horizon to be socialism. In a way, it's more of the same. It's capitalist politics, it's racketeering. But also, we are living through a, a very, very serious social crisis. 
And I think uh, 21st century Brazilian capitalism may hold some terrible things for us in the future. So it's not only same old, same old things. Uh, there is also a continuous process of degradation that I believe may happen a bit more slowly under Lula, but it's going to continue happening anyway, which is why we need a independent organization of the left, not only in Brazil, but also obviously in the core of capitalism, because that would really open up political possibilities in the periphery of the system. Yeah, here, here. Really, it is more of the same, is the same attempt to manage capitalism in the same way that it's been done for 12 years at this point, from the same party that controls the same government. Again, using the power of the state against people, increasing the power of the state against people. And I really wonder whether this, the rhetoric of, well, perhaps, I mean, just to be clear, of course, uh, people need to have what to eat. And of course, that I mean, people need to have good social conditions. I mean, that's just a given. But I think that the point is, what is the meaning of this election? In this sense, will the the programs that Lula will install and enact uh, that may prevent the social crisis from happening right now is that really does that really do anything for for the possibilities of a left? Is stalling the crisis better? I don't know. This to me just sounds a little bit conservative. The fear of changing, this is where this is why I compare the situation with, with the Trump situation. Because the Democrats, just like the Pechistas, in the end of the day, they're trying to conserve something. They're trying to conserve society and scared of, and um, they have fear of the potential of change in it. I guess the question is how to create the possibility for transformation at an international level, which is where the left and what it thinks comes in. Sometimes I wish that the left would just be more honest about its opportunism and that way educate future generations better about what they're actually doing. So maybe we can live up to that um, at least. I, I thank you all. Um, I think that I will include the link to the Ukrainian panel. So we have a Facebook page of Platypus Brazil. So you can send us a message uh, over there if you want to get in touch. Yeah, if you're in New York, if you go to the new school or a school nearby, um, we have our reading groups and coffee breaks every week. And if you go on the Narwhal Nation page and look up Platypus Society, you will find us and how to contact us. And yeah, everyone's welcome. Yeah, we'll include all of those links in the episode description. And hopefully we'll get uh, a chapter up and running in Brazil very soon. Thank you to both of you. Bye. Bye.
Okay, it's a few days after the U.S. midterm elections. We've assembled a panel today from uh, right across um, the U.S., contacts and members of Platypus, from New Hampshire to Walla Walla, Washington, from Philadelphia to Merced, California. And I guess the opening question is, uh, have you been following the midterms? Uh, more importantly, the contacts, the people you're encountering on the ground at your chapters, um, what was their kind of response and how were they tracking the elections? Yeah, so my name is Dinah. I'm from the University of New Hampshire chapter. I've been asking all of my friends, like, if they voted or not, because I was just interested in, like, if any of their, because there was a lot of campaigning going on on campus, like a massive amount of campaigning, because New Hampshire is such a purple state. And people were worried. I guess the Dems were worried that Maggie and then the other one, our other senator, were going to lose their seats. They're both Democrats. We had like a massive like get out and vote campaign on campus where they were like writing all over the sidewalks and stuff and sort of like accosting people on the street and handing out stickers, which was nice. But I think a lot of people were also a little bit annoyed. So I've been asking all my friends like if they voted and uh, I don't have a single friend who did actually. And my my friend group is pretty big. I know all the musicians here because I play a lot. I play in a couple bands and stuff. Um, and yeah, I've been asking all of them. I was at a party like last night for like about an hour and I asked some people there and nope, I don't, nobody's voting. So Great. Thank you. How about you, Daniel Jacobs? What, uh, what have uh, you been tracking in the Philadelphia area around the midterms? We, we've been talking and kind of following different left groups as well, just kind of in not just Philadelphia, but also um, nationally and internationally. It's interesting that Diana said uh, not many people voted her age because one of the big exit poll things was supposed to be that the youth vote delivered for the Democrats um, in this midterm. So this was supposed to prove that, um, you know, in I've been following kind of the lead up to the midterms. And in my mind, the left kind of divided into sort of three groups. There was a kind of chicken littleism of the kind of Jacobins, Eliza Featherstone writing the article of society's collapsing, we're probably going to lose terribly in the midterms. That has since changed, of course, because of the midterm upset. Um, my interaction with maybe more of the kind of party-based kind of union sort of Trotskyist groups was to kind of say, well, this is probably going to be a repudiation of wokeism and, you know, a rejection of kind of national security problems. So going after Trump's individual rights, the Mar-a-Lago raid, something like that. And then there's been a part of the left that's maybe been more interested in things of foreign policy. So something like the Ukraine-Russia conflict or um, United States-China conflict, say, over, over Taiwan. And so they were following the midterms, sort of preparing for that to be a kind of repudiation of Biden's foreign policy, that it would be a red wave, and then Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican, who said, if there's a red wave, there will be no blank check for Ukraine, sort of expecting that. So I actually was with a platypus member from New York um, who was down here in Pennsylvania um, that night. We were at a bar, uh, Chris Mansdorf, and I was kind of expecting that it probably won't be as extreme as people expected, but I was expecting the Republicans to gain more. And I remember talking to Chris about this, that I thought it would probably be something similar to when the Tea Party took a lot of seats in Congress, that it might actually end up play to the advantage of Biden, because you would let a lot of the kind of Trump uh, candidates sort of demonstrate their wacky side or goofy side, which is kind of what happened during the Tea Party era, where you had people like Christine Bachman saying, I'm not a witch. 
et cetera, et cetera. You would kind of, you know, show the one-sidedness of something like that. So that's what I was expecting at least. Thanks, Danny. That's really interesting. And I do wonder uh, to the extent that this midterm didn't meet many people's expectations and how that will condition things going forward for at least platypus activity. And let's turn to Washington now, Eastern Washington, Walla Walla. It's a little liberal enclave in a pretty Republican part of the state. Buddy, what what were you, were you following the election and what were your expectations? Well, I go to college at Whitman College, which is in Walla Walla. And this community, I think from just like the research I've done has for a long time been somewhat apolitical like there was no new left at this school i think there was like a strong anti-apartheid um protest movement in the 80s but aside from that like you know it wasn't like like we didn't have anything to do with occupied um or anything like that because we're mostly yeah we're in like a rural area that's mostly farm towns like we grow a lot of wheat and uh blueberries um and i that i think that trend carried through like like at at least on this campus most people kind of, you know, if they voted, they tacitly voted um, by mail for the Democrats. There was no big hubbub. I think my experience, because I was um, a, a freshman or sophomore in high school when Trump won um, the presidency, and that was a famous upset, right? Everyone was like, of course, Hillary is a shoe in um, But then, you know, Trump came through. I didn't expect that... Um, you know, what people foresaw would be what came to pass really at all. But I was thinking, you know, it would make sense that the Republicans would take ground, but it wouldn't have made sense for that to be because of like anti-woke, you know, sentiment among most people, because most people, I, I don't think care about that at all. And it also wouldn't have made sense for it to be about Ukraine, because I don't think that there's a strong anti-war movement or something like that in the, in the United States. I mean, the the inflation thing is the one perplexing part to me. No, it really is perplexing. And I think that other point that you raised, these other issues, you know, in some ways you could see how they might not have amounted to a change in uh, political fortunes of the Democrats. But, you know, inflation perhaps would be one of them. Let's turn our attention to California, University of California at Merced. Uh, Daniel Rudin, um, you in California have been facing escalating price of living costs even before the rest of the nation. How do you think about this in terms of you know these broader uh, cycles in American politics? Yes, yeah, so inflation is a perennial issue in California. I've been living here for off and on for like eight years, and the cost of living is insane. Nobody's been talking about it. And so the Republicans have picked up on it this election season. But I honestly don't think that their approach is really paid off, obviously. But, you know, I think they've just sort of tried to play the, um, the Democrat Party game where they pick up this issue and then they, they try to run with it. But it doesn't it's not going to translate into votes necessarily. It's, it's sort of spectral or abstract. It's not it's not a strategy. There's, they don't have, I think, an adequate machinery to, you know, to, to whatever, translate this kind of ideological concern into some kind of um, vote gathering mechanism. There was a little bit of discussion about the elections uh, in the past month. There's a very small DSA chapter and a few YDSA people kicking around the uh, campus here at uh, UC Merced. It is a conservative area. It's in the Central Valley of California. It usually would tend to swing Republican. 
So there was a progressive council member running. I thought he was going to be wiped out because he apparently has a record of supporting like defund the police. His partner's uh, PSL person or ex-PSL person, Party for Socialism and Liberation. And so one of the DSA people on campus was like, hey, you know, yeah, this guy is going to win because of his defund the police background. And I was like, wow, that's going to not play into his favor here. But, you know, after the election, it turns out he's ahead by like 20 votes and they're still tallying up and counting the votes and trying to figure out whether he won or not. So I was surprised that he, he performed reasonably well. And then in terms of the congressional race, the, you know, the Republican just barely edged out the, the Democrat by 200 votes. So these are like wafer thin margins. And so I'm not surprised he's ahead, but I'm surprised that he's ahead by so little. So again, I, I think this sort of issue based campaigning is not really working for the Republicans. That's just my take. And, um, yeah, I think there's a civil war going on in the Republican Party that's probably preventing it, them from kind of having some sort of functioning get out the vote strategy. Thanks, Daniel. I mean, there is a general sense that, you know, the Republican Party um, has not been able to capitalize on the discontents, um, you know, that have been generated through the pandemic, through the inflation, through the war. And, you know, that this, you know, and this is kind of treated on mass, although that, you know, they're you know, there is changes in the Republican Party. And at the same time, you know, it the underlying discontents haven't gone away. Danny, what what do you think about this? Um, you know, when you think about the Republican Party and, you know, what's been changing since 2016 in terms of um, in, in terms of the party itself? Yeah, I mean, I think the places where it's looked like Trump is getting beat back, at least from the standpoint of the left, are actually places where there's a sort of acceleration of what's defining, let's say, Trump being Republicans. And the, as Daniel Rudin was just alluding to, let's just say the other Republicans, as if there's a kind of crisis happening in the Republican Party. Um, the Wall Street Journal, so the day of the midterms, reported in exit polls that there was a 22% change among young Black voters um, from the 2018 midterms in terms of the differential between Democrats and Republicans. That was something that was there in the 2020 election, meaning there was an uptick in um, Hispanic and Black voters for the Republican Party. And I actually talked to Russ Duthat a few weeks ago, and I sort of quasi-teased them, but kind of made reference to his colleague, David Brooks, who said, well, is the Republican Party now a multiracial working class party? So that's one thing that's begun changing, and that trend, in a sense, has continued. That's just more of a demographic one. You know, another thing to mention as well that's big from the 2018 period is now there's sort of uh, international conflict. So the Ukraine-Russia thing is something that's very significant from the concerns of 2018 when there was low inflation, high jobs, pretty booming economy. And it was maybe the focus on, I don't know, Trump's um, judicial appointments in that sense. Crystal Ball, her understanding of the midterms was that Biden was able to bring back jobs, that there was offshoring under Trump, and that's what kind of linked things um, for Biden here. Now, Trump actually saw increasing manufacturing until 2020 in, in terms of COVID. And what she was referring to is the CHIPS Act, which is kind of related to the growing conflict of the United States and China. But the CHIPS Act really is not going to have any functional effect in terms of jobs for several years in America because you have to build the plants and then people get hired at semiconductor. 
um, dangerous. So this kind of anti-war side, which one was expressed in terms of someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene being reelected, but also as we were talking about earlier, you know, 40% of the voters um, said that the U.S. should be giving sort of less aid for the Ukrainian for Ukraine and the Ukraine-Russia conflict. And of that 40%, 72% were Republican voters, this is what the Wall Street Journal reported. And so I agree with Buddy, like there's not the anti-Iraq war movement of say the 2000s or anti-Vietnam war movement, but that discontent is a real thing. And it's also accelerated by the inflation. That's why there was the whole question of baby formula and you know Ukraine aid. Or that's also related to inflation. I mean, that is military spending. Or as I overheard at the gym the other day, someone says, I don't want the spoils of war. I want health care. That was his way of saying why he was voting for the Republicans. So I think something that has continued to kind of uh, solidify itself was that you're getting this crisis in the Republican Party that is either culturally demonized as isolationism. So the Europeans were very concerned about the midterms. Um, this was Matish, Matisch uh, said this of the European Council, that he thought that the U.S. was going to stop giving aid to Ukraine. Um, on the other hand, there is this question of like, OK, now the Republican Party is like the sort of uh, what, what would the, the peacenik party or something? You know, hey, buddy, I just saw you. Go ahead, buddy. Yeah, I just think it's like someone can say, I don't want to spoil this war. I just want health care. But they don't think that the Republicans are going to give them what they actually want. Right. The only possibility is that the Republicans will, you know, spend less on Ukraine. And I think that there isn't so much of a promise that that will then help people achieve like low inflation or something like that. So, right, like you're saying, it's preposterous for the Republicans to be the peacenik party, you know, like they can be, you know, isolationist or want to spend less on, you know, Ukraine, but that doesn't mean they're going to, it's like they would just say, well, we should spend on the American military. Instead. Only, only preposterous from the standpoint of the left's own self-image that it's supposed to be the right that is the neoconservatives. And what does it mean now that it's the Democratic Party who the left is identifying with in this election? Meaning, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of Jacobin, Jacobin is saying, well, the Democratic Party was successful to the degree that they sounded like us and right air quotes right here. Meaning like, oh, they're talking about climate change. They're talking about inflation reduction. They're not blaming inflation on Biden. It's corporate profitability or something like that. And they're identifying with the success of the Democratic Party. So again, Platypus's interest is how the left kind of what it means when they identify with the Democrats right here or what it means going back to Buddy's point when kind of the left's own self-image is taken up as a foil by the right in this sense. Yeah, it is really quite bracing to watch how these positions are, you know, really mirroring or reflecting the Democratic Party. And it, I guess, you know, maybe going to Diana in New Hampshire, uh, just thinking about how you have watched the, you know, the last, you know, four years since the last midterm election or since 2020, uh, you know, your sense of, you know, what changes have been going on, you know, you know that maybe perhaps that the left is, you know, neglected or not been able to track. I remember 2020 being sort of like, there was like a growth, maybe of awareness, like maybe not participation in the left, but in a, a growth of awareness in like positive awareness among people that you know, maybe the left sees as like a dead, you know, a dead end, you know? Um, and I think you can see this in Northern New Hampshire, which is one of the, the poorest places in all of New England, including like, you know, the boonies of Maine. 
um, you go up there and you can see like in 2016, uh, I used to drive up there with one of my friends and you could see like just houses that are like shacks and decked out and like Trump signs. Um, and Bernie won those areas. He did. He won them. Like Buttigieg, I think, won the uh, the more moderate areas of New Hampshire, like the richer areas. But Bernie like took all of those areas, all of northern New Hampshire. So I think that there has been a growth of awareness, but not maybe among the people that the left sees as like somebody who would have that awareness. It reminds me of what uh, Daniel Rudin said earlier about, you know, the discontents abound, uh, yet there seems to be an inability to translate these um, discontents. Uh, I remember Daniel talking about single issue politics, not really, you know, landing um, in this midterm. Daniel, maybe expand a little bit more, you know, why haven't, uh, haven't these discontents led to the sort of political change that maybe the left was fearing or the right was anticipating? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, yeah, the Republicans are going to have trouble, I think, capitalizing off this anti-woke stuff. I think it is sort of just abstract electoralism. I don't think it's very substantive um, in terms of them actually winning elections. I think that's proven to be true from these midterms. And I guess the question for Platypus is, right, what, what does it mean for Platypus and how do we sort of intersect these quote unquote issues, which are spectral, they're not substantive, they're really fluffy, right? This whole stupid thing about um, transgender swimming competitions, it's just so banal. And I don't know why anybody cares about it, frankly. Um, but, you know, how does platypus intersect it? So the entire, I think one comment that I responded to you in our correspondence before you organized this session was, um, you know, the whole Radlib phenomenon is is something that's proven very slippery and difficult for, for platypus to engage. I know Danny has successfully engaged it, but I find it a little bit curious that we seem to have published more on the anti-woke phenomenon, all right, the Cumberbatch, um, or not the Cumberbatch, um, Cryptofash, right, he's got this crazy, crazy pseudonym. Um, yeah, so that seems to be what we've engaged there, which I suppose you would say is part of this sort of anti-woke phenomenon, or it's attempting to um, articulate it in some sort of, you know, intellectual way. I think this does raise a, a larger question about, uh, you know, how is Platypus tracking the left if the left itself is slippery, elusive, and we sort of have to turn to this anti-woke um, right to really grasp historical changes and transformations or the, the you know, the realignment that Diana was was alluding to just a second ago. So it's not so much about the substance of capitalist politics, so much as how the left finds its history in capitalist politics. So is woke versus anti-woke or either of them left wing? No. In other words, that's the cultural war thing, or that's kind of like a misdirect altogether. But the left kind of attaches to one of those things as a function of part of its own history. So obviously what comes up to people in terms of woke is going back to various kinds of new social movements, gender, sexuality, anti-racism, and, you know, just apropos the midterms uh, election, this question of abortion obviously brought up the kind of second wave feminism, um, even though Roe v. Wade was a conservative court, et cetera, et cetera. And didn't you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg had this critique, yada, yada, yada. But the whole point, meaning that it kind of brought up a certain part of the history of the left of, okay, 
don't we have this history of fighting for women's rights? Right. And how is that being played out? And when they hear politicians say pro-life or pro-choice, aren't I you know, supposed to be on one side, even though in substance, a lot of it really, you know, was just Dr. Oz saying whatever. And it really doesn't matter. On the other hand, we can also say the anti-woke also brings up a different part of the left, which is in class first. So when I would then now talk to the left um, who are now trying to kind of tail this kind of anti-woke thing, then it's like, oh, it's the professional managerial class. And they're the wokesters and they're the ones pressing all of the DEI on us or something like that. And so my point being going into this election, when I brought up these kind of different sides of the left, is how they're all understanding which of the capitalist parties to tail based on their own history and their own ideological view of thinking about how does one do politics in that sense. So it's like the reason why capitalist politics has any substance, because really a socialist party would be indifferent. Why does it have substance for us? Well, one, there is no socialist party, but two, it actually kind of fixates the consciousness to the degree that there is no left. The left is dead. You know what I mean? And so that doesn't mean, therefore, oh, this is the objective conditions. And so we have to, therefore, choose between the capitalist parties. But what we try to do in Platypus is to actually kind of break that sort of pseudo action, the pseudo activism of people trying to find which of these parties do I get behind? And which, you know, this is the thing really with the Jacobin articles that they're trying to justify their activism through, oh, this is why John Fetterman won. Or this is why this person won. It's like populism. And this is the new kind of Medicare for all thing that we have. So you're trying to kind of stop that, that kind of automatic push, that impetus. That's actually perfect. That's how I wanted to um, conclude the episode is, you know, where do you see these opportunities for reflection in the next few years? What should platypus activity maybe center on in anticipation of, uh, you know, a pretty wild ride I'm anticipating over the next two years to the presidential election? One thing that I think the the Democrats used fairly well to to, like, strengthen their position throughout, like, the Trump era was like the like fascism as a as a cudgel right and they're they're going to like you know the wealthy middle class and they're saying fascism is going to happen if you don't vote for the right candidate and you know leftists will fall for that easily because exactly because of that historical consciousness that they have right like um in you know the left in france was the french resistance and we need to do that so we need to be the resistance of today but what was really instructive for me when I was doing um, the negative dialectics reading group was that actually like fascism is what, you know, was not for the kind of post-World War II left. It was not a, a thing that politicians do. You know, it's not like a politician is either fascist or not or something like that. It's not like, you know, the 11 characteristics or whatever people say it is, you know, now, which is super annoying for me. It's like a, it's a condition of society that, you know, follows from, um, like, social organization. And it's not, like, something that people consciously, you know, nece- or it doesn't necessarily have to be understood as, as something that people are um, bringing into being through their political, you know, agitation or something like that, right? That, for me, is, like, and, and people, no one realizes this, right? Everyone is, like, oh, you know, everyone on my campus is like, oh, like, 
Trump is a fascist. I'm scared of fascism. Fascism is going to happen. Oh no. Right. That's like the, you know, if anyone's political, it's about that. So I think that is an important thing to insist on in terms of political education going forward. Well, in response to Buddy's comment, we did engage anti-fascism in 2018. We had a series of panels on anti-fascism in the left. And so I guess that was possible because at that particular moment, it was the sectarian left that was kind of raising this question of anti-fascism, right? It wasn't something that the Democratic Party had taken up explicitly. And so we also had some time to prepare the panels and we did a whole series of them hit quite a few. So I guess then the question is, why didn't we have that panel series this election cycle? Because it was definitely um, in the news cycle for at least a year. But it wasn't the sectarian left that was raising anti-fascism. It was the Democratic Party proper. Right. So that that makes it a little bit more slippery and difficult to engage kind of like the Radlib, the question of engaging the Radlibs. How do you sort of differentiate them from the Democratic Party? And um tag them as being part of the left per se, right? The dead left, the sectarian left, et cetera. I guess the, you know, the last, the last comment I'll make then circling back is how do we respond quick on our feet to these, these topics that are sort of astroturf topics that are raised by the, the democratic party, not so much um, the left, right? That's a tricky one that maybe this, maybe that's something you just have to take a pass on, right? So one of the reasons one of the reasons I found right now to be interesting is in 2017, we heard that we could not, or 2016 even, we heard that we could not actually build an independent party because of the threat of fascism. Okay, not only was fascism ostensibly defeated in 2020, guess what? Now apparently it's really been beaten back, right? I was reading the Communist Party USA's comments on the midterms this you know, morning. And they were saying the working class has just supremely, you know, refuted the anti, you know, the MAGA kind of far right reactionary, you know, movement directly. And so right now should be, at least based on that kind of argument, the perfect time to build a party. Now, up at the East Coast Conference, we had a panel on what is political party for the left. And there seemed to be a lot of inhibit, you know, kind of resistance or even inhibition to building something right now as if it's kind of impossible. And in a sense, this sort of proves the point that to the degree that the Democrats win and the left hails them, they actually give an argument for why the Democratic Party is the rightful ruler and leader of society. But when they say, yes, they are doing the right things, they have the right inflation reduction policy, they have the right climate change. Why would anybody ever want to go join a third party then? So I think, you know, Diana's question is, is spot on in that sense. And I think some of this also has to do with the question of how the millennial left is hanging over the present as a kind of political hangover right now. Meaning when I talked to kind of prior to the midterms, some of the uh, leftist groups in Philadelphia who were saying, well, look, you know, Biden in office, this is demonstrating that wokeism is run rampant, that it's violent, et cetera. I, I bring that up because I respond to this by saying, well, yes, you know, these are all great points, but hasn't Trump already led, you know, the kind of anti-wokeism for the last five years? Meaning now to the degree that you get parts of the left who are now responding to maybe earlier parts of the millennial left, it's kind of too little too late. And so to me, there's been an interest in one kind of these perennial questions about political party for the left, as Diana's brought up. 
Um, but also the millennial left is still kind of hanging over things. When you mentioned the Norman Finkelstein panel from the East Coast Conference, my question that uh, Norman responded to uh, aggressively, he actually pointed me out directly and said, whoever that guy is in the front row, the sectarian, was simply that I, I asked the panel more explicitly Donald Parkinson in particular, because he's about my age, that aren't we hearing the exact same things that we heard like 10 years ago or 12 years ago, whatever, at Occupy? Meaning we were hearing the kind of Zoomer leftists repeat the same things. And we're hearing the same stuff about this is the final year for climate change. And I even mentioned the 2012 film. I guess, I think some, who was in that? John Cusack, right? Like the world's going to end. It's 2012. And now it's 2022. And so I bring that up to be like, what did we really learn? Haven't we just kind of ran in a circle like a, a Looney Tunes cartoon? And that really made uh, Norman irate because he said, no, Sanders and George Floyd were one of the big moments. But the reason I bring this up is I think like the millennial left moment has still been totally obscure to people. Not that it's a key to everything and it's going to solve everything, but it's weighing on people as kind of like a blind spot. Uh, now when they're kind of coming to, they kind of feel safe enough to talk about certain things, it's like a little too late. And so that's how I kind of understand the anti-fascism thing. Like now it's ridiculous for me to be like, fight fascism, right? Because it's Biden in office and the Republicans have just been routed. So what are you talking about? Right. But five years ago, it was if you didn't say that you're a bootlicker. Can I just say one more thing quickly as well? The other thing I noticed about some of the exit polls was that they still expressed a lot of discontents with the Democratic Party, even if those are the people who won. Meaning the majority, two thirds of the voters said that they do not want Joe Biden to run again. That was also in a poll in July. And people are still upset with inflation because gas and food are still going up. The CPI came down because of health insurance, but it will increase. Um, you know, and there's still things like crime, like Philadelphia has a growing crime problem. I heard somebody the other night literally like shots. It's bad. Right. So this stuff happens. And, you know, even the Jackman mentioned Liza Featherstone in that, that article that we were referencing earlier said the left should have been better on crime and not just say, oh, it's racist to talk about crime. So all these things are still there. So the victory of the Democrats is very much like a just eh, right? It's like a eh, I guess kind of thing like that, because I can't really, as Buddy was saying, I don't really think the Republicans will change it. And it's just the eh, fine, take it, take the reins of the power. Thanks, everybody, for such a good roundup on the midterm elections and uh, looking ahead to platypus activity um, going forward. Thank you so much. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Villaggi. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org.
That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!